This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, what's it like to write about Canadian politics when you're writing to an American audience? JJ McCullough joins us. He's a columnist with the Washington Post. He's a YouTuber, and he's going to tell us all about his insight on the federal election. Plus, how can we get Canadians to have better political conversations? We dig into that too. If you want to save the world, you should just take it easy and have a nap. That's what Greg Fish says. He says that's the secret. Be minimalist. Have a minimalist lifestyle and be more creative. It's the future of humanity. The world of weird things is on the podcast. Plus, are you okay with Halloween? Are you okay? Are you okay is a segment where you can contribute to 877-399-9898. What you do, just send us your texts. For example, are you okay with vending machines? Oh, yeah. Love it. Love. I just love the chorus vending machine. It gets me through the night. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Did you read the first line of the story that Ryan wrote? Why don't you read it out loud since you just said that? Okay. Yeah, you read it. Yeah. First line of the story. We know Brendan Kelly couldn't make it through the shift without a pit stop at the chorus vending machine for some <laughs> Hawkins cheesies. And it's true. I can't. You, you even right? called it the chorus vending machine. That's the best part. Wow. That was, <laughs> that, that, good. I was unintentional. That was yeah. unintentional. That's yeah. so good. Oh, well, Ryan was man. the same way when he used to work in the studio, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm way too frugal. Uh, I would just go steal the cheesies from, you know, the operator who's <laughs> pushing the buttons who already paid for them. Oh. <gasps> so annoying. That is money that Hawkins a... Cheesies could have used, Shane. Yeah, and that's oh, a host disappointed. thing. Because you're not the only host that does that. You know that? Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's a host, host thing. Really? Thing. Across the I board. Only, it's all I you. want two. Give me two Cheesies. Mm-hmm. I don't want a whole bag. You, you all say that. Yeah. <laughs> okay, two more. Okay, it's pretty safe to say that here on The Shift, we do love vending machines. It's true. But a vending machine is only as good as what's inside of it. Truly. So how about this? A vending machine filled with meat in Florida. What does it mean to be from Florida? Florida. Straight drill. All right. So uh, a vending machine filled with meat Hmm. in Florida. A butcher shop has put a vending machine outside of its shop filled with fresh cuts Italian sausage and more meaty snacks. That vending machine is open 24 7. Here's more from ABC6. It's located at the Boozy Pig on West Cypress Street and it's owned by Andrew Tambuzo. Andrew grew up making Italian sausage with his family, so opening a butcher shop with what he learned throughout his life just made sense. The machine was installed in March and is open 24 7. It's filled with beef jerky and raw meat like bacon, different flavors of burgers, cuts of steak, pork, Italian sausage, of course, and more. Andrew tells me the machine is smart and very safe for those in the community who may be a little skeptical. It's pretty well regulated. It has sensors inside that regulate the temperature. Um, It stays anywhere between 33 and 38 degrees. Um, Of course, it goes into its own cycles where it might get a little higher than that. But there's safety features as well. So if the temperature does go above 41 degrees and stays above that for 20 minutes, it shuts off and it will not vend. The vending machine stays between 33 and 38 degrees. It's totally safe, except for when it doesn't stay between 33 and 38 degrees. <laughs> but it'll shut off. So 
But what happens when there's that person who's like, I don't care, I need some beef jerky, and they just stick their hand up, you know, to get some, and it's just all ready pre cooked. <laughs> what about when the um, when you order your sausage and and it falls and gets stuck on the way down? Yeah, yeah, that's a mess. <laughs> and it, it'd be even worse if it's one of those ones. Remember when Coke tried to put those crazy bottle ones that would like move the little tube right mm-hmm. up to the Coke dispenser, and every time it's like, oh, that looks so cool, and then it just wouldn't work. Mm-hmm. I the hope it's conveyor not belts. I like those ones. Those yeah, are fun to watch. Bel- They're more like yeah, those game. are neat. This is a crazy smart meat vending machine. Instead of glass, the front of the machine is made from plexiglass, which doesn't reflect the heat of the sun on the inside, but it also is built so no bugs or rainwater can get into the machine. Oh, that would be gross. The owner is hoping Boozy Pig can get more of these meat vending machines around the Tampa Bay area. I can think of cooler places to put a meat vending machine, just to be clear. Um, I. Oh, my God. I think this is awesome. Personally, yeah. I think this is cool. Yeah. I think this is a brilliant way to, like, now if you're, you know, in an Uber home, you don't have to stop at McDonald's. You yeah. can stop and pick up a nice, fresh, cold cut, take it home and put it on the barbecue, something like that, right? I, I just think this is cool. This is neat. Well, my favorite thing is the chorus vending machine, as happens occasionally, messes up and gives you two of an item. Um Ooh. Yeah, every once in a while. You get lucky. You get two of a night. Imagine getting like two cold cuts. Roast. Yeah, two roasts, yeah. two steaks, two whole chickens. Well, that's <laughs> a great segue to this text message with the cost of beef today. $20 says that vending machine gets stolen within a week. <laughs> Just take the whole machine, <laughs> back up a truck, hook up a dolly, take it. It would be more valuable to steal that than to steal an ATM. Oh, probably. Yeah. Like, seriously. Especially if it's, like, proper beef. Yeah. Yeah. As opposed to improper beef? That's weird. Uh, yeah, I'm, like, comparing butcher quality to Taco Bell quality. That's what oh. I'm saying. Are you saying that's yeah. improper meat that they use there at the Taco Bell? <laughs> are, I'm not saying, implying, look. You're implying that's meat? It, <laughs> I am implying it's meat, but I'm saying it's somewhere between probably shouldn't eat this meat and it's probably okay to eat this meat. It's Probably somewhere between both of those and Subway tuna. Um, mm, that's a good comparison. Okay, so there's nothing better than getting your sausage stuck. Thanks, Trucker Dan. Uh, yeah. He also says, uh, are you old enough to remember vending machines that sold cigarettes? Absolutely. Yeah. They had a big knob in the front. You'd have a whole vending machine filled with cigarettes, and that's all it was. And it had like a big crystal-looking knob on the front. You'd put the money in and pull the knob, and yes. there's the carton of cigarettes. So no ID or anything, eh? No. That's, that's just no. the time. Just, oh, no, that's, that's the thing. Bizarre. I remember being a child and my grandmother giving me the money, and we go getting her the brand of cigarettes that she wanted. And I was like six. And I, yeah. I remember parents giving their kids notes to go to the corner store oh, yeah, and say, too. Yeah. you know, hey, hey, Mrs. Smith, um, can you... Uh, Shane has my permissions for two packs of players light. Here's the money. Can you please give them to him? He'll bring them home to me. And then you'd walk up with your note and you get your wow. two packs of smokes and you would go home and take them to your folks. These look pretty cool. I'm just like from an objective, like design layout, they look very fancy schmancy. Um, not to mention that as a grade two art project, we used to make our parents ashtrays, Ryan. So, Oh yeah. I did that one too. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody in class made their parents an ashtray and took it home as an art project as a gift for mom and dad. Like that was a school project. 
You think so? As a school project? It's going to be, yeah, bongs. All right. Oh. Your, your parents are tired. Make them a bong, kids. Roy from Aurelia sends in a text. He says, what about truck stop sushi in a vending machine? Oh, that, oh. That's a throwback right there. <laughs> oh. Can you imagine how gross that would be? Oh, God. All right. Nice. Now we've grossed everybody out enough. Are you okay? Are you okay with Halloween? Yeah, it's the only time of the year where the music that I listen to is acceptable to play publicly. Oh, nice. Yeah. That's a great. I relate to that. I really relate to that. Uh, Brendan, I know your taste is a little bit more Halloween friendly than mine, but I, I know exactly what you're talking about. For me, I always work on Halloween. All It's like a curse. I always work on Halloween. And this Halloween is no exception to that because it's on a Sunday. So I haven't celebrated Halloween since I was a kid, but I love dressing up for Halloween. I hate Halloween. Oh, no. I think, I think uh, Halloween is this a dad is the, reason, though? No, God, no. I just think that Halloween is the stupidest uh, thing because, like, Halloween is enables all of this stupid stuff in our society. If you want to dress up as a slutty nurse, you don't need Halloween to do it. Just go be a slutty nurse. And that's all it is. But that's Halloween all it's become. <laughs> Is yeah. is a slutty everything? You can be a slutty Whoa, ghost. You can be. That just. Sizzle. I think that's. There, you, you, if you go to a club, you're going to see someone dressed up like a you know a, a slutty nurse, but you're also going to see someone dressed up as Squidward from SpongeBob, which I actually saw at Cowboys. But there's so probably going to be slutty weird... SpongeBob. Like Whoa. that's the thing. <laughs> this is a sad commentary on a society like that they exactly. want to do that. But like that's, that's not point. what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be like spirits and ghouls and things. Exactly. Not, not so. Not don't dress up like Kim Kardashian. Yeah. Like. You know, so that's my point is that every day is a costume party. This is a costume party, all of it. That's why they call in the, in the Brits call it a swimming costume. They call everything a costume because of the fact that it's a costume, it's a, it's clothing for this particular event. It's a costume. So life is a costume party. So if you want to be a slutty nurse, just be one. Damn, that's Shane. My point. I, I, I just like wow. an excuse to get a little drunk on a and dress up, and eat some candy. Like, dude, watch you were movie. so excited to wear your gray sweater when we went to Banff yesterday. You were like, "Ooh, Banff! I can wear my sweater." So, I mean, yes. there, that's your dress up. You've got it. You are. You could be slutty Banff tourist, whatever, Shane in your gray like sweater. Like, just embrace it. Yeah, everything I hold dear right now. See, I'm saying, just do it. Yeah, I don't dress up for Halloween. I never do. I just like playing the cure loudly, and it's okay. Yeah. Yes. In a black T-shirt? Yeah, in a black T-shirt. <laughs> All right. Anyway, I think costume parties where everyone has a theme, that's fun. See, that's wear your costume. I think that's fun. Okay. But you don't need Halloween to go live your life. Go be who you are, right? You want to dress up as a cowboy? Go be a cowboy. You want to be a slutty cowboy? Go be a slutty cowboy. Do it every day. Who cares? Wear what you want. You want to wear a dress to work and you're a dude with cowboy boots on? Do it. You want to wear work boots, suspenders, and the hokiest outfit you can think of? Just do it. Just go do it, man. While you're at it, grow your eyeballs long. Anyway, sorry. That got me a little lit up there. Yeah. Sheesh. I do like the free chocolate, though. Yeah. Okay, spooky good. Just making sure. The spookiest day of the year is right around the corner, and it's only a few weeks away, but it seems someone in Texas is already getting into the spirit of the season. On Monday, ahead of Hurricane Nicholas's landfall in Texas, ABC 13 reporter Micah Hatfield 
captured a man walking down Galveston Beach. That man was dressed as one of horror's classic characters, Michael Myers. But who is the man behind the William Shatner mask? His name is Mark Metzger, a Galveston area lawyer who is no stranger to doing these things. His prank caused a stir on the beach, but it did not last for long. Galveston police said uh, officers received a call of a masked man with a knife with blood on it. Oops. When police arrived at the scene, they detained Metzger and learned that the knife and blood were fake. Police said Metzger cited for disorderly conduct and released. Meanwhile, Metzger said he did it as a way to try to find a little bit of positivity in the doomy gloom, gloomy doom. Not quite sure walking around as a movie mass murderer right before a hurricane brings positivity. However, he does have an amazing description of what it was like being arrested while dressed as Myers. They had their weapons drawn on me. Rightfully so. I could see from their from their perspective. They had their weapons drawn and were like, you know, drop the knife. And said, said something. I, I couldn't really hear, but I'm assuming that's what it was. And I, I kind of, it's a, you know, it's a little toy prop. It's, you know, it's, it's, it, in the wind, it was, you know, already doing that. I was kind of like, Oh, let it go. And it flew about probably, I don't know how far it flew, but, um, you know, get on your knees, face away, hands behind your head. All right. And then uh, it felt like a scene out of Scooby-Doo. After he handcuffed me and he pulled the mask off. It's like, ah, oh, I would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for those meddling Karens. <laughs> meddling Karens. Oh, wow. Ruh-roh. <laughs> Uh, he was asked if he would do it all over again. His response, if I had to do it all over again, I absolutely would. Text mm-hmm. comes in from Dwayne. says, Shane, your gray hair is showing. <laughs> oh, that stings a little. Ouch. Yeah. But I think I need to take you to a good Halloween party, yeah. Shane. I no, but I think it's the that. opposite. What I'm, I'm not saying don't go to Halloween parties. I'm saying don't let Halloween be the excuse to dress up the way you want to dress. In fact, it's far more open-minded i'm saying if you want to do it on thursday may 7th do it well i think you don't need a party to do it this story is a good um a good um a way uh that we need halloween because well, i mean this guy like well, if he did this murderer. on if he did this on halloween it probably wouldn't be as much of a story no. he wouldn't even have been yeah. thought yeah, twice but he's a mass murderer walking on a beach in public with a knife with blood on it like, that gets you in trouble most days. Most, but not yes. on Halloween, does it? <laughs> I don't know. I say that everybody should just go be yourself, wear what you want, who cares, and um, and all those things. All right? We have so many of these that we want to get to here. I got to do one more. Can we do it quickly? Yeah, quickly. No. No, we can't. Aw, that was sad. That's okay. There's always a, are you okays. And there's we have always to save them day. now? We have two very good ones. I actually have four already made, but I kept two of them out because I wanted to save them. Because we're excited? Okay, well, there it is. Um, Apparently, uh, Ryan says I'm not allowed to do any more. Ryan. Well, I don't control the clock. I am not the time wizard here. You can do whatever the heck you want. (laughs) Well, actually, Brendan Kelly's the sort of the the time wizard. Okay, anyway, all I'm saying is is just if you want to dress up, go dress up. Don't wait for Halloween. That's all I'm saying. And by the way, eat all the candy. All of it. This is the Shift Podcast. There is a fantastic Canadian writer. I almost want to say performer because he does the video things on the U's and the tubes named JJ McCullough. He's from the West Coast. He's in Vancouver, but he does all kinds of freelance writing. And I was most recently introduced to his work with a piece he wrote for the Washington Post that was about the Canadian election. So it's kind of a 
it's kind of an inside view Canadian guy who's kind of taking an outside lens and bringing it back into Canada, man. Like, it's interesting. JJ, thanks for being here, man. Thanks for having me. So, writing uh, for Americans to read about Canada, do you take a different perspective there, or is it is that a different journey? This is curious. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting, and I, I am uh, a lot of the Canadian media sort of establishment, such as it is, I think quite resents me for this position I have because you know to be able to explain Canadian politics to the Americans is sort of seen as this kind of somewhat lofty. Uh, position. And it is a sort of humbling and important position that I have. And I try to take it seriously. I I do try to sort of like walk the fine line between sort of being an explainer and but preventing myself from sort of becoming too condescending. Right. So you want to write in a way that doesn't presume a lot of pre-existing knowledge about Canadian politics when you're sort of breaking down or offering your sort of hot take on, on this or that. But at the same time, you don't want to like really dumb it down to the point where it's like in Canada, we have, you know, these parties and like we our party is called the conservatives and the you know what I mean, right? Sort of really making it kind of babyish. And so because as much as a lot of as long as much as it is an a American paper and it is uh, for a American audience, primarily it's for an international audience, uh, a lot of Canadians read it. And so I do kind of try to write in a way that can be accessible to an international audience, but not also be uh, inaccessible or, or sort of overly uh, condescending to a, a domestic Canadian audience either. Do you think that we as Canadians miss that point that it's quite possible that the political people speak about the political things and we use jargon and all this stuff? You know, one of the ones that always gets me is when people say, drop the writ. Now, that, oh, that's yeah. political <laughs> jargon in such a way and it's accurate and it works and all that but you could always tell somebody who is plugged in or at least thinks they're plugged in and then yeah actually that's a good point i'm going to break this into three pieces the people who are plugged in or think they're plugged in and then the people who say yeah there's an election coming up because there really is those three kinds yeah. of people they're the people that literally nerded out and got excited for political science in college or university right and they're like this is the best thing ever and then there's the people that think they know politics but they still get caught up in the spin and there are the the other people that probably could use their hand being held it seems to me that a little hand holding Mm -hmm. might be beneficial for canadians not just americans yeah, no, I, I agree. I'm I really dislike jargon and I really dislike this very sort of affected mannered tone that a lot of Canadian political writers tend to take. And and in part, it's sort of in, uh, affected by this kind of um, sort of passive anti-Americanism that is so pervasive in Canadian culture. Right. Where there's this kind of sort of subculture of media sort of nags who are just constantly telling you, like, don't use that term. That's the American term. We use this term. Right. <laughs> like we must always call it, you know, like the example of like dropping the writ is like a good example or like the idea like, oh, you must always call it a riding. It's not a district. District is an American <laughs> word and we don't use that word here. And I, I think like I think that the, the terms that you use is, is very important in, in making Canadian politics sort of broadly accessible, both internationally and domestic. You know, for exa- example, I often like to refer to people as just being the heads of the party. Like, you know, oh, J- uh, Jagmeet Singh, you know, he's the head of the NDP mm-hmm. as opposed to like, he is the leader of well, the NDP. Well, because it does make you wonder you know, if they actually are leaders, right? 
Well, exactly. And I mean, like, you know, just like small, but just like small, subtle things like that, like just sort of casually using more casual language rather than, or, you know, like maybe a better example is like somebody would be, you could describe them as being like, you know, the head of the CRTC, or even like he's the head of Canada's media regulatory agency, mm -hmm. right? Like just kind of using more kind of colloquial language rather than getting so fussy about titles and, and sort of, uh, you know, vocabulary and that kind of thing. I, I do, I do think it's important. I, um, I, I think I think you're bang on with that. One of the things that really drives me crazy in general, when you look at riding, is when we say riding, it's like our brain kicks into this thought of, ooh, politics. But if you said community, <laughs> people are going to go, oh, crap, that's yeah. me, right? And and yeah, and yeah, I think that yeah. matters because there's so many of us that don't actually equate what's going on in politics to this really does affect your life at home, dude. Like this is quite possible going to mm -hmm. be a big impact for people. Mm. Now, that's that's that is a very good point as well. Yeah, like purposefully using language that's a little bit more accessible and uh, and clarifies exactly what these things mean, because they're not they're not just sort of purely abstractions that exist as a sort of entertainment for the sort of political nerds that you were describing. Right. Like that. These are actually consequential things, consequential sort of structures, human creations that exist in theory for our benefit or possibly for our, uh, you know, our suffering if we're not careful, <laughs> right? So you do have to take it. this kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, exactly, right? I mean, like, you know, but the stakes are high and the consequences are real. And so you do kind of have to uh, treat it as something more than just kind of a silly game uh, that's either for entertainment or just something to kind of be uh, fussy and bossy about to sort of keep people in line and to like to act as if like terminology is somehow one of the most important things in Canadian politics. Well, that to me leads me to righteousness, right? That's where we become so friggin' righteous yeah. as citizens where we're like, <laughs> you use the wrong word. Look at me. I'm powerful. We did a thing on the shift here the yeah. other night where we asked that question about frontline workers, you know, with all the protests going on in Canada. And we said, mm -hmm. here's your opportunity right now. What do you want to say to the frontline workers? Because we used to bang our pans at seven o'clock in the front step we're in a, a year and a half later yeah, nobody's yeah, yeah. doing that and here we are with protests at hospitals what do you want to say to the frontline workers and this is a human thing i don't judge anybody for it but everybody who called in had something to say about covid anti-vax anti-mask protests politics whatever nobody actually talked about the frontline workers and i think that's a condition all mm. across you know us in the audience that you're speaking to um that uh, the the righteousness is is so well actually I would go I would even turn it this way I would say the fear of being wrongness is so strong so how do you write into that every day you've got your YouTube channel it's very popular um, how do you speak into that every day and, and somehow make it so incredibly appealing that you know the Washington Post wants your articles about Canadian politics. Well, I mean, I I would hope that my stuff is popular because it is engaging or because it presents politics in a more accessible way or in a, I'm good at communicating and sort of spreading information in a way that people find useful. I mean, that's a sort of flattering interpretation. I would imagine that there's plenty of people that just like me because I sort of reinforce what they already think, or perhaps there's people that sort of hate read me because my opinions are very contrary to what they think. I mean, I do have a lot of haters out there and you can look at the comments of any of my Washington Post articles and there's a ton of people that say like, why does this person have this this job he's so terrible at everything you know he's has no business telling the world what's going on in canada he's an ignorant buffoon and all of this kind of stuff so i don't know it's it's uh youtube is is different though like i often sort of think like my youtube audience and in my washington post audience they're two very different realms and 
there's not doesn't tend to be a lot of overlap between them. Like there's a lot of people that watch my YouTube videos that are completely oblivious to the fact that I write for the Washington right. Post. And there's a lot of people that read my Washington Post columns and have zero interest in in watching YouTube stuff. And 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 to be fair, like I don't do a lot of political content on YouTube. And uh, whereas on the Washington Post, it's almost exclusively political content. And uh, the Washington Post is also it's an opinion column. It, I write for the global opinion section, so I'm pretty firm and explicit in what I sort of think versus in uh, in my YouTube videos, which are much more, yeah, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that they're neutral per se, but they do try to be a little bit more objective and a little bit more analytic. So I guess people just ultimately like they, I, that's what I suppose I've been successful at in my life is that I've been good at sort of compartmentalizing in that way and offering different sides of myself for consumption to different audiences. So what do you see in the in this election? Might as well. I mean, you do write these opinion articles all the time about it. Um, might as well hmm. uh, set the bird free and let you soar. What uh, <laughs> what do you see? What's going on? Yeah, it's it's quite curious. I've been sort of thinking about this a lot lately. What kind of profound lessons we can take from uh, the sort of the state of Canadian politics? One thing, uh, like in terms of you know Trudeau was going down for a while, and then O'Toole was sort of coming up, and now it seems that you know Trudeau is back up on the top again. And that these have been relatively small fluctuations as well. So like even when O'Toole was sort of riding high, you know, he was like what, like one or two percentage points above Trudeau, right? And what this suggests to me is that this is a very, very polarized country in which there are just a lot of Canadians that are just fundamentally not persuadable one side or the other. You know, you have O'Toole who's running this like super, super moderate campaign. He's basically checking all of the boxes that sort of, you know, conventional wisdom, the media in particular, have sort of told him to do. Like, you know, conservatives are are scary, so don't be scary. Don't run to the right on this. You know, minimize the difference with the Liberal Party as much as possible. He's doing all of those sorts of things. And yet it's very possible that he won't get more of the vote than Andrew Scheer did. It's possible he might even get less of the vote than Andrew Scheer did. And it's also possible that, like, for all of Trudeau's scandals and whatnot, that he's going to basically, you know, cruise to uh, a victory that's very similar to what he got in 2019. So what this suggests to me is that on some level, it doesn't really matter who the candidate is on either side, there's just a ton of Canadians who are very rigidly attached to very uh, firm stereotypes about what they think of the other party. And they don't really care who, you know, who's leading that party at any given time. You know, if you're on the left, you know, you kind of, you've made up your mind about what all conservatives are like, and you're never going to go anywhere close to that party. Versus if you're on the right, you know, you're pretty set in stone about what you think of Trudeau and it's uh, this election is never going to move one way or the other as far as that goes. So it's it's a little bit uh, depressing, I suppose, that, that people, I think a lot of voters are just making their decision based on not sort of the purely kind of rationalistic, kind of clear-minded objective assessments of, of, of leaders and policy that I think our democratic system kind of takes for granted that they do. And that's uh, that's a little bit discouraging because it makes people like me who spend a lot of time writing and arguing about politics it's like does my job really matter does the matter does the job of a persuader is that even a relevant uh, uh sort of uh, task in in modern political uh life in canada yeah, is it even achievable right you hear stories of american politics mm. uh the families right oh this is a conservative family this is not a democrat family yes and i've even met some people that have said you know all my life i i, I was raised in a conservative family i found myself as a democrat and i'm no longer allowed to come to thanksgiving like there are there are crazy mm -hmm. stories from other places but here we are in canada looking at this we received a text message uh, just the other day from a listener who said, I'm a liberal, I'm a liberal voter, I will vote liberal in this election, 
Justin Trudeau just hasn't done enough wrong yet. He doesn't like Justin Trudeau. It's very clear. I don't like Justin Trudeau, but he hasn't done enough wrong yet to kick him out. And for me, as mm. a sort of political purgatory sitting person where I look at all parties quite evenly and decide what's going to be best for my riding, I always go and say, that's mind-blowing to me. Um, as a broadcaster, the one guy who's given me nonstop audio bites that I run over and over and over again, Justin <laughs> Trudeau's a gift. He's like Donald Trump, man. He just keeps giving. He just yeah. keeps on giving when it comes to audio bites. Yeah. And it's like, it, it's, it's interesting to me because I think it is objectively clear that kind of the sheen has come off Justin Trudeau some time ago, right? Like we seem so far from like the 2015 uh, election in which Justin Trudeau was this kind of, you know, Obama-like sensation and, you know, people were writing these flattering articles about him all over in the world and, you know, making literal pin-up calendars about him and this sort of thing. Like we're very far from that. And I think that now what you have is like, there's a lot of people sort of on the center left who are just kind of resigned to Trudeau. Like, they're pretty cynical about him. Like, they're not excited about him. But at the same time, like, they are still captive to their kind of, like, wild stereotypes of what they think conservatives are. And they don't really care to shed those. Like, they're not open-minded. Like, they might be open. They might expect us to give them great credit for sort of saying, well, like, I don't really like Trudeau that much. But on the other hand, they're not sort of thoughtful enough to sort of look at somebody like O'Toole in any sort of objective or fair-minded way, because ultimately their sort of identity as a person is, I think, in part defined by a kind of opposition to what they imagine the conservative tribe, such, so to speak, is, right? You know, like conservatives, the conservative tribe in, in modern Canada are like, you know, rural, religious, kind of like backwards, sort of simple-minded, closed-minded, you know, racist, homophobic, you know, just ignorant, uneducated, you know, people, right? And like, there's a lot of people that just are not willing to sort of shed that that perception of what the other side is because it's in part how they place themselves in this sort of modern complex civilization that we all inhabit. You know, we all, we're, we all are increasingly, I think, um, holding much firmer to much more rigid sort of tribal identities that provide us with a much greater sort of sense of meaning than they used to. And these are increasingly fused with the political system. And this is something that you see as much in America as you see here. And I think you see that around the world a lot as well, too. I think there was a time in which political parties were not nearly as sort of central to people's identity and not seen as such a, a uh, sort of congruent extension of so much else in their life, their, their, you know, their, their standing, their class, their culture, their friend group, their profession, all of these sorts of things. Well, it's certainly evidence of uh, social uh, separation, right, in a big way. Um, and that's concerning. So how do we, uh, I don't know, how do we fix it? Let's put our heads together. How do we get people to talk about it? And more importantly, uh, I would say that it's possible we're talking about it. How do we get people to actually listen, not just to go from, these guys are talking about conservatives or these guys are talking about liberals and just kind of shut it off. How do we actually get Canadians to, well, give a shit, frankly? Huh. I mean, it, it's definitely difficult. Like, I mean, if this was an easy fix, you know, I think we would have done it a long time ago. I, I do think that uh, I do think that like making people interact with people from outside of their tribe, like from what I've understood that there actually is a lot of sort of empirical data and research that suggests that this does work to some degree, is that when you bring people of different groups together, you make them sort of sit face to face and actually try to talk things out they can realize that, uh, you know, that a lot of their stereotypes are false, or at least not as true as they previously perceived them to be. And so, but that's, 
that's easy to do, like at I suppose a, a small level, right? Like if you think about people having individual conversations, or they sort of broaden their friend group, or they're at some you know meeting or whatever. But when you sort of think like, well, how can I make that a sort of national policy? How can I sort of implement that at a national level if this is a problem? That isn't just, you know, like a Vancouver problem. It's not just a neighborhood problem. It's this kind of like national or even international sort of cultural problem across the entire Western world. It's very sort of difficult to come up with like a one stop or a, a sort of an easy one size fits all kind of fix to it. And I think like to be fair, you do see the politicians all sort of perceive that this is a problem. Like I've, I see you know, Justin Trudeau in his own sort of confused, imperfect way is at least sort of like grappling with that. And so is Aaron O'Toole and so are the NDP and, you know, so are everybody else. Like there is a sort of sense that this, that this is sort of something that we should care about. And I suppose if we're going, if we want to be sort of optimistic, we can say that, you know, like in AA, you know, the first step is admitting that there's a mm -hmm. problem. So I guess you kind of have to be encouraged by by that, if nothing else, that at least our leaders are not completely with their heads in the sand uh, of the sort of the political world that they inhabit. And if we take them at their word, a lot of them are not actually happy to be inhabiting this kind of political uh, culture. Well, that's a fantastic statement. And I would uh, add to that, that um, they are all very clear, clearly communicating unity in a way that we haven't heard, I think, in a lot of in a lot of election cycles. So that's kind of cool too. JJ McCullough, if you go to the YouTube channel, which by the way, I'll post the link up on our Facebook uh, group there, the Shift Radio Show Facebook group. So you can see all of his videos. They're not all um, political. For example, if you've ever wondered about Dairy Queen cakes, um, there is this big expose <laughs> uh, about things like that too. Yes. So I really appreciate your insight, JJ. And I just want to acknowledge the fact that I think taking the stand that you take and I don't want to say simplifying because we often hear simple as being wrong, but really providing some clarity and some easy access to Canadian politics, ironically, through an American paper, is exactly what Canada kind of needs. So I would, uh, I, I'm grateful for your work. Well, thank you so much. That's very, very flattering. Thanks for spending some time, brother. Thank you. It's the Shift Podcast. Welcome, Welcome to the world of weird things with Greg Fish. He is back and in Technicolor on the world of weird things.com. That is one colorful blog post, my friend. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So here we are. And I got to tell you, I am somewhat concerned, Mr. Greg Fish. Oh, you are. Anything well, I can do to anything you okay. need to assage those concerns? Okay, well, let's just, first of all, let's go through uh, this uh, character that is Greg Fish. Greg Fish is a young man who grew up in uh, Eastern Europe and Eastern Ukraine in a, a city that had a different name publicly than it did locally, where you weren't allowed to visit because it had gates. And they, to this is quoting Greg, where they made uh, truck trucks that looked an awful lot like rockets. And so then he moved to America and lives in California at the point and has created his new life as an engineer. He's got an engineer mind. He works. Uh, he works in computers and science, computer science, programming, and all those things. And he has a blog called WorldOfWeirdThings.com, where he writes about all sorts of musings from black holes to robotics, AI, and the future of the world. So, if we're about to take a step into the mind of anybody to talk about daydreaming, yes, it concerns me when I wonder what goes on in your head sometimes. Lovingly. Well, I mean, 
Well, I mean, we did have that segment about how to become a robot with your brain in a jar. So you 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 have some ideas. You have you have some clues there. <laughs> how are you doing, bud? It's good to see you. Oh, good to see you too. I'm I'm doing well. How about yourself? Things are good. We're in the middle of our federal election here, so this conversation is incredibly welcome for us to be able to uh, take our mind off of all things politics and maybe think about a different way to save the world. So where are you taking us? I am taking you inside your mind, but but not in that creepy cult leader, follow me, do as I say, drink the Kool-Aid way. In a, you should just take some time to relax and pursue your hobbies and think about what you want to do and let yourself get bored every once in a while. Because we're constantly told that, you know, that that, that old expression, uh, idle, hand, idle hands are the devil's plaything. If you're, you have to be working, you have to be productive, you have to do everything all the time. Otherwise, you're wasting time and resources and money and so on and so forth. But when you actually ask scientists who study, they'll tell you the exact opposite. If you are constantly busy, if you're constantly running around all the time, if you're constantly working on one thing or another, you're actually overtaxing your mind. You're not letting your brain develop its creativity and come up with the ideas that it needs. And you're basically hitting a point of diminishing returns fairly quickly. So the thought is, if you want to be more creative and you want to be more productive, you have to focus your productivity and you have to stop trying to work and do things all the time to let your brain think because your creativity, your imagination, all of these things come out when your brain has slack, when it has excess capacity. You could have saved me a bunch of money and a lot of time. Here's why. You're basically telling me, That if we stop thinking and just kind of sit with nothingness, that we become creative. And I just spent 10 weeks studying in a seminar for three hours a week for 30 hours of study, uh, trying to uh, learn how to declutter life in order to create that nothing space so you can be creative. So frankly, I think you owe me 200 bucks. Whoa, 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 whoa. See, this is why I need to read my blog. That's I'm, I'm just gonna put it this way: you're gonna you're save, late. you're gonna save money. <laughs> because if you had told me this ten weeks ago, at least on this level, um, I would be way ahead, fish. So how are we gonna save the world by doing nothing? So, an interesting. I, I kind of want to go back to the consultants there for a second. So you have, no, you have people who, who run around and tell people, this is how you be creative. This is how you be innovative. This is how you come up with these new ideas. And a lot of times this ends up in offices. So I don't want to necessarily pick on anyone in particular, but there is a certain former CEO of a company called Yahoo who spent a great deal of time in the office and insisted that the only way that people can be creative as if they're basically living at the office and the only measure of success of a company is how long its employees work. And in her tenure at Yahoo, she kind of just managed to run it into the ground despite spending enormous time in the office. Mm -hmm. But she was following all of these things that all of these creativity consultants tell you to do to a T. So what, what went wrong? What went wrong is that you 
cannot just tell people, be creative, interact with each other, talk, come up with ideas. That's not that's not how people really think or come up with the ideas. What happens is it's not necessarily just sitting and thinking. It's more kind of like a mindful meditation sort of deal. You have to think about the things that come up to the surface, the things that you are that that really just come up when you let your mind roam. And then start kind of exploring and probing further and thinking, well, this is a thought that kind of con- that kind of bugs me. Let me let me think on that a little bit more. How do I want this to work? How do I want this to turn out? How can I make this better? And that's how you how people come up with ideas. That's how you become creative. You you let your brain do its job without overloading it with a bunch of busy work. Now, I'm a horrible hypocrite about this, and I'm just going to come out clean because somebody will somebody will tell you eventually. Uh, and and I do and I do work a lot, and I do not let my mind roam as much as it should. But this is one of the things I'm working on, and this is one of the things I would encourage people to work on because that's how you really come up with something with something innovative, according to literally every single study that we had on the subject. The problem is. How do we get the room to do that when the people who are in charge of everything believe that if they run us into the ground with 12-hour days, we're going to come up with these magical ideas? They have to start reading and paying attention to the science that says that's not how any of this works. So one of the things, though, that uh, a good boss might say is that's what vacation's time's for. Go decompress and come back with a bunch of great new ideas, Greg, in in these overworked scenarios where, by the way, even your vacation time is a chance to decompress and still think about work so you have fresh ideas. So I think we've all heard that one before. Yeah, and that's not how any of this works. That's not that's just not how things how how things are. If you go and you decompress and you make yourself and you give yourself time to think about work, you're still just thinking about work. Whenever you are very busy and overloaded with things, you have to start asking, are the things that I'm overloaded with, are the things that I'm doing actually valuable? Because one of the things that I remember we talked about on a a previous segment is that a lot of the work that we do in eight hours can actually be compressed in four hours and we're even more productive. There's an incredible amount of waste and repetition and bureaucracy at a lot of jobs and a lot of things that get produced, a lot of the artifacts that get produced don't really get used very much. You know, is every spreadsheet important? Is every report important? Is every meeting important? Of course not. And we waste this time and then, we, and then instead of instead of saying, "Well, you know, we only need to do three, two, three, four hours of work today," let's call it a day and let's figure things out tomorrow. People will continue to think about the problems that they have. People will continue to think about things that bug them. But giving them that directive, you have to sit there and concentrate and think about work. That your mind is not gonna have that ability to really stretch itself and and notice all of these all of these thoughts that may turn into viable innovative ideas. I like that. You know what I call that in my writing? What do you call Resist, that? Resistance is persistence. That's yeah, that's exactly that's exactly it. You have to you you have to really not not focus on trying to get a, it it's kind of like when you 
when you tell people don't think about XYZ, they're gonna think about XYZ. When you tell them exactly. think about XYZ, they're gonna their minds are gonna wander. It's like you, you you know, your mind it plays that that whole, you know, negative psychology game. So you have That's to fine. get you ahead of do it. it. Let's do it right now. Okay, so if you say this to everybody, okay. Everybody close your eyes. Except if you're driving, trucker down. Don't do that. Um, whatever you do in your mind, don't picture a waterfall. And what's the first thing you think of? The most gorgeous, beautiful waterfall that you could ever imagine because that's just where your brain goes. Your brain doesn't get the don't. It just goes, oh, waterfall, that's fine. Okay, now open your eyes, especially if you're driving. Yeah, it hears the word waterfall, and that's what it focuses on. That's and that and again, that's the whole that's the whole issue. Trying to guide people's creativity is just not a thing that's possible or wise or advisable, according to again every single study on the subject. But we try to force people to do that because we've convinced ourselves that we ourselves that we work kind of like machines, and if we give these machines a certain task, they will eventually spit it out one way or another. And that really comes from the kind of that paradigm that people have gotten into their heads because it was drilled into their heads, that the human mind is like a computer. And before that, it's like a telegraph. And before that, it's like whatever the most sophisticated computing device was around. And it really isn't. And we have to stop comparing our minds to it. So once you get that idea, your mind is a completely different thing from a computer, from a machine. It kind of does its own thing and you have to let it do its own thing. You can start approaching it in a very, very different way. And what's going to end up happening is in, in experiments where this has been tried, where people have kind of just been let loose to daydream more, to work less, to travel more. And, and I don't necessarily mean, you know, expensive, lavish vacations overseas, just be able to go somewhere new, see other, see new things, experience, um, experience new sites, hear new ideas. They come back inspired. They come back with new ideas, with new concepts, things that they want to try, ideas that they want to figure out whether they can actually take them somewhere. And that's what we need to be focused on. That's what we need to be encouraged, encouraging. Just sitting around thinking about work, just sitting, just sitting around thinking about, well, my boss told me that I really need to come up with an idea that no, 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 that that's not going to work. Now, going, getting out of your shell, seeing new things, reading new things, interacting with, with new people, that's what's really going to help you be more creative and be more productive and if a lot of companies adopted that, like if we all went out and magically made every boss around the world understand how these things work, we would actually easily add trillions of dollars to the global GDP. Now, I have questions, Greg Fish. I would hope so. Do you think that this comes from, and if I'm getting off topic and you want to save this, uh, just let me know. We can save it towards the end, but I think it fits right now. Do you think this comes from the fact that we don't get paid coins in our hand at the end of the day like we used to? Because we do put all of this weight on, we need to love our work and be inspired. When in the old days, many people loved their families and loved to provide for their families. So at the end of the day, the intention has changed. 
end of the day before, you would go out and you would hammer out your horseshoes for your job or whatever it was, and you would come home with a handful of coins, and that was your bounty for the day for the family. So there was your instant reward. Today's world, we don't even see our paycheck. Some people will even go, oh, yeah, we got paid last night, right? So that part of the the logical work for income part has really disappeared for a lot of people, and we feel like we need to be inspired at our jobs. Do you think that's a byproduct in where we're heading here? I mean, I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying that's kind of the way it seems to be. I don't think that's exactly how this works. What really happened is during industrialization, um, the, there was this idea that you know everything needs to be run like a factory, and so everything was timed and run and shifts. And we did, you know, we we went assembly and instead line of, style, yeah, yeah, assembly line style. Everything's assembly line work. Well, now we're post the industrial age. In fact, we are overproducing. We have way too many factories. We have way too many. Um, we have tried to cram this this model of living in way too many places, and we understand that this is not viable especially you know after the after this pandemic or rather still during it uh, and we're kind of trying to roll it back and we have decided well what we're going to do is we're going to keep telling people that they need to find meaning at their jobs in order to get them to show up and get them okay. to work like like the machines so there's there's yeah. been a concerted effort you know, hustle culture, the passion economy, whatnot. These are really just buzzwords for this kind of ideology that comes from the 19th century that, you know, people who are not working in the way that is measurable are wasting time. Mm -hmm. People who are not subscribing to that factory style of work are lazy. Yep. And so we tell people, oh, you need to find meaning in your work and you need to work all the time because that's how you prove your value to society, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But that's not where we are. And that's not where we need to be. Where we need to be is to say we are in a post-industrial economy. We are more focused about knowledge and ideas and innovation. So what we want is we want your ideas. We don't need your butt in a chair in front of a computer we need you to think of things that will make the world better, by which I mean things that we can turn into products or services that will make us money and to replace things that are inferior. That's what our economy runs on. And we haven't really caught up to that and understanding that time in the office does not mean necessarily work getting done and time out of the office doesn't mean people aren't doing anything or can't contribute anything or need to be bothered constantly to contribute something on their phones and or IMs or whatnot. So that is the big shift that we are trying to make. And there are a lot of people who are not getting it in, le in leadership position. And the people who are getting it in different companies, in, 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 uh, in, in different uh, creative endeavors, they're seeing the benefits of letting people just daydream and think and travel and experience and come reinvigorated with new ideas and saying, let's try this and let's try this and let's try this and let's try that. And, it, and if five of those hundred ideas that they throw at you actually work out into a real product, then that's perfect. You will make all of your money back. You will you will gain whatever market share you were you were planning to get. You just need to encourage people to actually contribute knowledge. That's why it's called the knowledge economy, not 
the office economy. Can we trust people to get there? I got to be quick in the answer here, Fish, but can we trust people? Because, you know, this whole sit back and daydream man in a technicolor world, that bred an awful lot of um, communes and acid uh, back in the 60s. Um, can we trust people to have the self-discipline to actually create and work? I mean, because to me, when you have leadership who's trying to control people's workday, it's because they feel like they can't control whether they're working or not. It's hard to be ideas tangible. Well, people will behave the way that you expect them to behave. You will always have you will always have someone who takes advantage of whatever benefits you give them. But your job in a leadership position is to identify those people and cycle them out of their organization. You're not supposed to you can't punish your best performance by punishing the and controlling um, and controlling them for the worst people. So we can trust the majority of people and we need to uh, buy, but in order to trust them, what we need to do is we need to say, these are the expectations. This is how we do this. And please stay on track. That sounds like and integrity, people will surprise Greg. you. Yeah. Create an agreement, outline the expectation, uh, hold the uh, results accountable. This is great. I love this. Worldofweirdthings.com, by the way, is Greg Fish's uh, blog if you want to check it out. This reminds me of, Greg, of when you take time off work, there's a time where your brain kicks into ideas again. You're like, oh, yeah, when I get back to work, I'm going to do this. And for everyone, it might happen three days in, nine days in, whatever. And sometimes people say, oh, do you miss work? And, no, I don't. I haven't really thought about it since I, since I left. That could be rather indicative on whether or not that's kind of your jam. Because, I mean, I know for me, there's a point I get to when I take a week off from the show, I bet you I don't think about it for five days. But after five days, oh, the ideas start coming. Look out, Ryan. When we come back, we got lots of things to tackle, right? Like some people, they'll say their coworkers, oh, God, Steve's taking a day off or taking a week off again. When he comes back, he's going to have all these ideas. Oh, crap. So it all makes sense, man. This is... uh this is kind of cool, although I do like the Technicolor. You know, let's all put on a poncho and have a little sing-along. That's not so bad either. <laughs> He's speechless for the first time ever. <laughs> He's a scientist. He's a computer guy, so ponchos and sing-alongs don't compute for Greg Fish. Greg, thanks. I had, uh, a, I had a bit of a crash there. <laughs> <laughs> you had the spinning wheel of death for a second. I love it. Uh, Greg Fish, worldofweirdthings.com. You can check it out. Uh, it's a blog. There's some podcast stuff on there, too, and it's very, very interesting. Uh, Fish, thanks for bringing it up, man. I think it's a fantastic topic, and I think something we all need to pay attention to. It's great to see your face, bud. Always a pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.